and welcome to At the Bar, our virtual happy hour conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. I'm Inez Stepman with the Indian Guest, um, and we're going to continue the discussion about Title IX because um, it, it is going to be such a monumental uh, shift in our law if if these potential regs um, end up going through. So, and we'll get to all of that. If anybody remembers from our last conversation. Um, but first, I want to uh, introduce our fabulous guest today. Um, we are talking today with Betsy DeVos. Um, she's dedicated her career to addressing the many problems with the American education system. Uh, for more than three decades, she's been one of the leading advocates for educational freedom and choice, including as the former chair of the American Federation for Children, um, as well as the Philanthropy Roundtable, and culminating in her service as the 11th Secretary of Education under President Trump, an experience she has now written about in addition to plenty of policy solutions um, in, in the education space in her soon-to-be-released book, Hostages No More, The Fight for Education Freedom and the Future of the American Child. She's also the mother of four and grandmother of 10, so uh, she definitely has more than a little skin in the game of the future of American education. Um, Betsy DeVos, thank you so much for joining us today on, on At The Bar. Well, thanks, Inez and Jennifer. It's great to be with you. After a little technical difficulty, I'm sure <laughs> it's good to be with you. <laughs> uh, technical difficulties, unfortunately, are, are unavoidable. Um, I'm just going to jump in our into our Title IX discussion today. Um, I think undoubtedly one of the biggest triumphs of your tenure as secretary was restoring some sanity um, to the Title IX enforcement process, right? Um, especially in the areas of free speech and due process. What, why did your administration think that these uh, changes were actually necessary that, that you guys made back um, when, when President Trump was uh, in the White House? Well, and as it, it was clear that the Dear Colleague letter that our predecessors had uh, sent to all higher ed institutions, well, all educational institutions across the country, was just wreaking havoc um, in terms of actual student lives. And we, I heard firsthand from students who had been on the uh, end of, had, had been on the uh, receiving end of uh, sexual misconduct and those who had been falsely accused Used, and for all of them, they said the process that they underwent was not working. It did not work. Uh, we know that we're there were hundreds of lawsuits filed um, after proceedings that were unfair, that didn't consider due process. And, and then uh, in many cases, uh, the accuser having to relive a lot of the, the pain of a, a previous um, you know, a previous uh, proceeding. And so it was very clear um, also listening to many of the administrators that were charged with actually trying to follow the uh, prompts of this dear colleague letter that uh, that we had to do something uh, significant to really put a balanced and fair framework and approach in place. And so that led to the two and a half year uh, proceeding to put the, the, the regulation in, into motion. I'm interested in your um, your statement that you spoke with a lot of administrators, Title IX administrators. I have always believed um, that, you know, as much as the Dear Colleague letter that was put out by the Obama administration sort of cemented this madness, uh, that it was the colleges themselves, or at least certain people at the at the colleges and universities that were driving the process, and that they themselves wanted 
the 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 uh, political coverage of the dear colleague letter, or or to you know to be able to refer to it as a mandate um, to justify something they were already doing. Did did do you is that analysis wrong? Did you find that to be the case? Did you find them to be willing partners in trying to establish a fair process? Well, I think that in many cases that was the case, that there was a bent and a bias that that many uh, Title IX administrators wanted to see uh, bolstered to support, as you said, as to support their proceedings and, and their uh, method of handling. But there were a lot of others who really didn't find it uh, very fair or very um you know, they they felt that there were a, there were a lot of elements that were very wrong, and um, and yet they felt that this letter, which didn't have the force of law, but in effect did, because the um, Office for Civil Rights really you know held financial resources over their head, or investigations, or all kinds of the tools that OCR uses to really go after uh, you know offenders in their minds. Uh, and so it was, It was, I think, um, very important. I know it was very important after hearing from a number of Title IX administrators, but more broadly, uh, you know, chief counsels for institutions, presidents of institutions. There were quite a few who would quietly talk to me and encourage us to proceed and, and to really uh, go through the rulemaking process, uh, many of whom were, you know, very reluctant to say anything publicly. Mm -hmm. But uh, I know from many conversations that there were a lot of a lot of folks in the higher ed world that were very, very happy with uh, the, the fact the fact that we took the time, did the hard work and and really, uh, you know, solicited a lot of advice and counsel and input from uh, the, the widest range of individuals. I mean, it was the, you know, 120 uh, some thousand comments that we had to respond to in the in the process. And so um, it was uh, it, it was it was welcome, though it was not welcome by it was not universally welcome. Well, I do think that anybody who actually read the regulations put out by the Department of Education in your tenure can see that they are very thoughtful, very even-handed, and for the most part, simply restate or you know administratively codify Supreme Court precedent. There's there was nothing radical about it. It was just articulating for people who may not have understood the contours of sexual harassment law. Uh, what exactly it means, what exactly is required by universities to make sure that people are treated fairly um, and that these that these claims are heard. Um, so I thought it was very rational. There was a lot of pushback and hyperbole from certain segments, including some segments of the higher ed world who um, Inez and I will, will recall very clearly, tried to stop the regulation from coming out on the grounds that we were in a global pandemic, as if that had anything to do with it. Right. Um, you know, they tried to use COVID to stop them from coming out and then tried to use COVID as an excuse to for not, not implementing. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Do you think, I know it's hard to predict, but I wonder, had uh, the Biden, had Joe Biden not won the election, whether those universities 
would be complying with these rules or whether they would be surreptitiously, you know, doing their own thing or fighting them or what have you? Well, I think for some institutions, you know, no matter what happens, it's going to be a a difficult progression to get them to actually follow the law. And uh, these regulations now stand as law, have the force of law. And so, um, but then again, if they're very honest with themselves and they look at the hundreds of suits that have been brought, um, you know, and I think about the the suit that was in the, um, is it the fourth the one that included the University of Michigan, where, um, you know, they they actually the the court's uh, opinion, um, I think, in some cases went further than uh, our regulation did. And so, as you know, as long as the regulation stands as law, uh, these institutions are going to have to enforce the the, the law, the rule. Um, and if they don't, I mean, individuals are going to bring cases that I think, you know, they're going to have a hard time defending, not following uh, the regulation properly. Um, as, as we, we look at uh, these, these sort of media stories that have been coming out, one from the Washington post initially, then from Politico most recently, uh, kind of outlining what this current administration is attempting to do. And I really want to commend you here. You, you, you guys really did the sort of golden exemplar of um, what an actual notice and comment rulemaking procedure, you know, APA procedure for putting out a rule, um, you know, was, and, and I think that's the reason, part of the reason this administration has taken them this long to um, actually try to even start to undo some of the things um, that the previous administration had did, because you guys, you guys you dotted your, you know, I's and crossed your T's and, and that administratively has made it harder for them to undo these changes. Um, nevertheless, we're seeing, these media reports saying that in imminently we will be getting a um, new proposed rule that will undo uh, these changes on due process, on um, free speech and the contours of harassment, also on um, the definition of what sex means um, in in Title IX. And I'm just going to pull up the the language of Title IX that we're talking about here. Um, So no person in the United States shall on the basis of sex be excluded from participation and be denied the benefits of or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Somehow out of that sentence, um, it it appears that this new administration is interested in providing essentially federal civil rights (laughs) protection um, to any student who identifies as one sex or the other, and thereby, you know, sort of obliterating all the all the issues that we, we're always hearing about in the news now, right? Um, you know, whether, for example, female sports should be sex segregated, whether um, women have the right to compete only against biological women in the swing pool or the track meet, or whether they have the, pri- the, the right to privacy in some of these educational institutions to have single sex spaces, right? For example, in locker rooms. Um, you know, what do you anticipate these new regulations um, coming out are going to do? Um, and, and what are your, you know, sort of worries about how they're going to shape higher ed um, going forward? 
Well, I would just observe that this is the second major time that uh, the Office for Civil Rights, first under President Obama's administration and now under President Biden's administration, are really trying to weaponize Title IX in a way that is totally counterproductive, ultimately, for uh, the protection of, of both genders, of, of, of women being able to access education and, and sports equally. And, uh, you know, now this, uh, at least the per the the rumored proposal to extend it to uh, suggest that any biological male that decides he wants to compete as a woman uh, would have the opportunity to do so. You can't say you are for the intent of Title IX, which is allowing se both sexes to equally access education and sports, and at the same time say it's okay for a biological male to compete on a woman's team. They're, they're totally contradictory to one another. And, um, and so, the, you know, I, I think this is uh, just an further evidence of how far to the left of their party they are, you know, pl playing the tune and singing the song. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's going to really, if, if indeed the proposed rule includes uh, includes that language, I think there, you know, there, there's going to be huge, there must be huge blowback on that. And uh, we can't, you know, we can't sit and let that uh, sort of progress and, uh, and let a, uh, an agency, a federal agency basically change the, de the definition of sex uh, through a, pro a process or a procedure like this. I think that most people in the public, when they hear the phrase Title IX, they think of it as a sports law. Um, mm -hmm. They don't really realize that there are all these other components of it. Um, it's both, as Inez said, very simple, a very simple sentence, and yet complex because it applies to every aspect of the educational experience. Right. Um, and I think that's part of the problem is that people think it's just this one thing. They don't realize it impacts due process or sex and sexual harassment, freedom of speech, and these other aspects of the educational um, environment where uh, men and women could potentially be treated unequally. How do we educate people so that they understand that this very simple statute that, that really is an attempt to uh, call for equal treatment of the sexes. How do we explain to people that the Biden administration is on the cusp of using that simple sentence to radically rewrite social policy, um, you know, in, at, at the K through 12 and collegiate level? Well, I think the most, uh, you know, straightforward and simple way is to talk about the sports aspect of it, right? Because it's the simplest, it's the most easy to understand. I think most people say it's simply not fair to say a biological male competing on a woman's team is a fair thing. Um, you know, you've got thousands, tens of thousands of young women across the country who are working hard at their sport, um, playing on their, you know, high school's team, looking forward, hopefully, to some kind of a scholarship to play in a college. And, and then um, suddenly we could just have to compete against a biological male and, uh, you know, that, that have all kinds of, uh, you know, 
physical advantages having if assuming they've gone through puberty they you know they simply have physical advantages nobody can deny that and so i think i think really focusing on the sports aspect of it is the easiest way to communicate this uh, some of the um, you know, the, the discussion around free speech and what constitutes sexual harassment, which was an important part of the rule, as you know, uh, we define sexual harassment and used Supreme Court precedent in doing so uh, first time it had been done. And uh, and so it, it puts a much uh, clearer frame around what is speech and what is actually sexual harassment and sexual misconduct. So, but I, with, with regard to the question around how do we bring people's attention to this, this is, I think, the, the sports aspect of it is probably the easiest to explain in a, uh, an elevator pitch or in a, a, a short, you know, a short conversation. Yeah, you know, it's, it's so obvious. It's like, um, it's hard to believe that we're actually having sort of right. this national debate when, when, for example, everyone saw Leah Thomas in the pool, right, um, competing against biological women. It's it's very, very clear um, the advantage that that gives a competitor if they're biologically male. Um, well, I think I was a right. swimmer, so I, I could relate. <laughs> uh, you know, I competed um, through high school. I didn't swim in college, but um, you know, as a good swimmer, not a great swimmer, if I had, if I knew I was going to ha have to compete against biological males on my own team or with my, you know, in a, uh, a high school setting, you know, think about all the young women who just would simply not even, uh, go out for athletics because they, you know, they're, they don't have maybe a hope of getting a scholarship, but they want to be on a team competing and, you know, have the satisfaction of winning. Well, it's it would be a real, um, I think, a real downer for a lot of young women who uh, want to have that, you know, have that experience, but to know that that was something they were going to have to deal with. Yeah, we've yeah. actually had an opportunity to talk to mm -hmm. a lot of these young women. And what I hadn't realized fully is the emotional impact that this has had on them, on the other sure, Ivy sure. League swimmers and NCAA swimmers that had to compete against Leah because it wasn't just a question of whether they could win. That, you know, was difficult enough. But to have themselves compared, as one mother told me, to, to compare their own strong bodies to an impaired male body was really devastating. To get up there and say, I have to compete against an individual who's deliberately reducing their performance and that that is the way you know a strong healthy um athletic young woman is supposed to compare themselves to that and that somehow really devastated them their self image their body image and the the emotional consequences i think really cannot uh be overstated here we talk a lot about you know, inclusion and making everybody feel welcome, but nobody seemed to be concerned about, you know, the emotional feelings and the inclusion of the girls that had trained so hard for so many years. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it is just one of the, the great ironies of this whole uh, situation is that this law that was passed uh, to ensure opportunities for women um, in higher education is now being used to take away a lot of those same opportunities. Um, but while we while we still have you here, Betsy, I really wanted to ask you about something. Um, in many ways, you were on the vanguard of what I would call these kinds of mob tactics, right? Um after your confirmation hearing, uh, and then, you know, you, you you were sort of going about the business of being the secretary, for example, visiting schools, and um, and and there would be mobs that would show up uh, to, to yell and scream and protest everywhere that you went. Um, so whether you were giving a political, anything remotely political or not, it was, they, they were following you, like I said, to just random school visits when you were, were going around schools in Washington, D.C., for example, um, now we're seeing those protest tactics, uh, being turned against the Supreme court justices right after this mm -hmm. leak. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was wondering if you, you had any thoughts about sort of being the recipient of, of these kinds of tactics, you know, how this is going to affect not only political discourse, but the law, right? We're, we're this is a legal show. We're talking about, um, you know, the interpretations of title nine, we're talking about legal issues. Uh, do do you worry that this kind of these kinds of tactics are going to really impact our ability to neutrally implement the law, for example? Well, I'm very hopeful that they do not, and that uh, you know the the justices, as we've continued to hear, that they are uh, committed to following the law and um, and in where, wherever that happens to lead. I know in my case, when I was faced with the opposition and the mobs in multiple locations, it was easy to, for me to stay focused on the fact that what we were doing, what I was doing to lead the department was focused on doing the right thing for students. And it was really clear that a lot of the mobs that a lot of the mob that was uh, opposing me at every turn was more interested in a system or in adult issues or in uh, in not changing things, even though change is indicated by every measure. Uh, and so it was easy for me to stay focused on doing the right thing for students and continuing to advocate for kids, for students, for young people, for their futures. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm I'm confident that the Supreme Court justices are also committed to uh, the law and and uh, to their profession to make sure that what the mob tries to uh, sneak in and and uh, attack in ways that are. Um, you know, very unseemly that, you know, they will, they will stay focused on their job at hand. And I'm, uh, I'm, I have confidence that that will be the case. It makes it very difficult actually to, to teach students and young people um, how to debate issues civilly. Right. And, and I, I worry about the impact it has on teachers and schools who might want to have their, their students discuss these issues, um, right. you know, and students have to be able to feel free to state an opinion or to argue a case uh, from an academic standpoint without feeling that they're going to be mobbed by their students. So it's, you know, the implications are are disastrous for for law, but also for education itself. No, absolutely, and 
Um, I, I mean, I think the intimidation tactics and, uh, you know, the um, marching on individuals' homes is a bridge too far. And I, I hope that uh, law enforcement will actually um, occur in this case and, and will, um, you know, in, enforce the law that, that does say, you know, justices are not to be intimidated. Um, but I, I, I agree that the, the discourse and the, um, the ability to exchange ideas in a non-threatening atmosphere has been disappearing, um, by the day, but we, I, I think, we all here can be committed to modeling how we can do that and um, and to being, uh, I think, to, you know, to not reacting in kind when uh, when we are attacked, but instead turning around and continuing to talk about how important it is for us to be able to talk about these ideas. I, I just was at a mostly day-long meeting today where, you know, lots of young people were participating, and um, it's interesting to hear how how reluctant they feel to actually express their opinions on things because they have been so beaten down in 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 multiple senses um, in their education environments. Which brings me around to my advocacy for uh, freeing students from a system that has tried to be one that has been one size fits all for over 175 years, and to a system of education freedom where the money for those students follows the students, and where we have a uh, literally creation of multiple different kinds of education opportunities, and supporting teachers who need that same kind of freedom in an education setting to be able to do the thing they do best, which is help students learn. And um, I, I am firmly, I'm of the firm belief that with a few years of education freedom and real education freedom for all students in K-12 education, that we would see an entirely different atmosphere um, quickly develop as a result because parents, families will find the place that this is going to be the best for their child. And if they don't find one, they'll help be part of creating new ones. And, um, and that will be the best situation for students and also for great teachers who also need that same kind of environment. And uh, that's, you know, I, I think We've we've tried to do the same thing the same way for uh, decades and decades and expect different results. Um, and the only way we're going to actually make progress is to try something completely different. So I, I look forward to having more of those conversations with those who are defenders of the system as it exists today, and. Um, and, and really challenge them to think differently about what is necessary today. You know, I think, I think you're so right to draw a parallel between these, these two issues, right? Because um, when we're talking about the inability uh, to, to sit down face-to-face -face with somebody and have a, even a heated debate or discussion, um, 
you know, I do think a lot of those that self-censorship, it starts in in K-12, right? It continues up into higher ed. And part of the reason that we're even talking about Title IX the way that we are, um, especially with regard to the harassment issue, is because we over the decade, last couple of decades, we've inculcated an ideology that tells people that they can't speak freely and tells people that they are right to be fragile about hearing other dissenting views from their own, right? Um, and, and you've been you've been a, an, obviously an advocate for educational choice um, for, for just decades and decades, a champion for, for school choice. Um, so, I mean, 2021 legislative sessions were possibly the, the, the real year of school choice. I've been hearing that since 2011, but um, this time it really seemed to come come through. Uh, and and uh, before we wrap up here, I know that a lot of your book is about um, those solutions that do provide freedom and flexibility. You know, parents seem more engaged now uh, than they have been since I started doing this like ed work, right, 10 years ago. Um, you have a, a longer timeline than I do. Um, have you ever seen this amount of energy uh, behind school choice? And if, if not, um, why do you think that that's happening now? Well, it's no, there's never been this kind of momentum or energy and it's happening for a, a variety of reasons, but all coming back to uh, the pandemic and how uh, kids were locked out of school for months on end. Um, kids who could least afford to be, who are the most vulnerable and needed to be in person in class the most, um, whether it was uh, mask mandates or whether it was seeing, you know, parents seeing on the uh, distance learning and what their kids were or weren't learning and being hap happy or unhappy about, you know, either of those situations, either they weren't learning anything or they weren't actually making progress or they were, they were observing uh, curriculum that they were uh, appalled by. And so it really is a confluence of all of these things that has, have, ha have awakened uh, many families that I think thought their kids were doing just fine. Um, and now you see at the school board meetings and in all other settings across the country, uh, families have have really started to find their voice on behalf of their own children to say we need and want something different. And so I think that that momentum is going to continue to build because uh, the system is continuing to double down on protecting itself. And uh, so I, I think we're going to see more legislation at the state level a lot more legislation to allow freedom, to allow that, you know, I, I use the metaphor of a backpack. Kids use their backpacks to take the stuff they need for school each day. Let's metaphorically attach the money that's already spent on that child to that kid's backpack to go to the school or the education setting that is going to work best for him or her. And, uh, you know, parents parents will, um, will see this through ultimately. Um, well, on that on that hopeful note, um, and, and we get so few of them these days, uh, Betsy DeVos, former Secretary of Education, thank you so much for joining us here on At The Bar. Um, it's been a real pleasure to have you. And I just want to um, put out the name of your book once more for our listeners. Her book is Hostages No More, The Fight for Education Freedom and the Future of the American Child. And I believe it's released in June 21st. Is that right? First, but you can pre-order anywhere you like to buy your books. Great. I look forward to reading it. Thank you so much Thanks. for joining Thanks, us. Jennifer. Thanks, Inez. Appreciate Thanks it. for coming. Thanks for all of our viewers for tuning in for another episode of At The Bar. We'll see you next time.